I'm glad to see. <laughs> Come on. I'm glad to see you've all shown up for a second time. Did I have a choice? Well, did you? I don't know. I anymore. think that's I think that's really uh, more of a question that you can answer than a question I can answer. But if you're part of my subconscious, then if you answer, that does mean I answer. So I'm asking you. <laughs> this is true, and that's that's what I was going to say about all the insults I did to you the last episode. <laughs> is that really you were sort of complimenting yourself? Uh-huh. Because if I seem better than you, that makes you better than me. Yep, sure, okay. Like, if I win, it's really you win. Right, so this is all just overall a positive experience. Exactly, and I need you to keep telling yourself that? I I will. Excellent. I most certainly will. Well, hello, Michael. Hi. And welcome to English 691.5, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy with Secret Whiskey. Hmm. Um, as you most certainly know from last time, uh, and the, uh, later to be determined gentle listener who hears these tape recordings that I've made from the secret tape recorders hidden all around this room. You found one of them, Michael, but you haven't found all of them. Um, as that listener well knows because they have listened to the episode labeled part one and didn't just start with the episode labeled part two. Uh, what this is is a class where one per- person lectures and has all the power, and the other person is allowed to say stuff and has none of the power. <laughs> and we discuss the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy Gentleman by Lawrence Stern. Mm-hmm. And we drink Green Spot Single Pot Still Irish Whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that said... <laughs> Let us wait. We can't do this yet. No. We haven't heard from the intern. No. Intern? Wasn't she your teaching assistant before? Yes, but I forgot the word for teaching assistant, so I've said intern. <laughs> I couldn't tell if it was a demotion or promotion. Uh, it is both simultaneously. Okay. Uh, teaching assistant intern? It's either an intern to a teaching assistant. No, whatever. <laughs> Uh, please, please uh, read the rules of this classroom. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? 
If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Thank you. <laughs> you had some weird phrasings in there, but I don't remember what they were, so we're going to let it pass. Let us pour the whiskey. And I'll let you offer up the first toast. Schlank. As we say in the old country, here's mud in your eye. Well, what I thought we'd do for this class session, well, as you know, it has been an entire semester. Uh -huh. You are in your underwear. <laughs> No, you are in my underwear. Oh, okay. Uh, and this is the final sort of review session before the oral exam, uh, which will take place approximately halfway through this class session. Um, but before we do that, I thought we'd take a brief tour of oddities in Tristram Shanty. A tour of oddities. Um, yes. I wish you would turn to... The end of chapter 12 of volume 1. Okay. Oh, what a weird printing. <laughs> well, as you can see, my end of chapter 12 of volume 1. Michael, mm -hmm. would you describe uh, what is happening at the very end of chapter 12 of volume 1? There's a gigantic black rectangle. There is. It is as if someone... It is also on the other page, mm -hmm. leading into chapter 13. Uh, it is as if someone... Instead of sort of... It is as if... The white space on a page was an accident. And that pages were printed by chipping away from sort of a formless void and creating white space that created letters. But as if someone forgot to do that for what is, in my edition, page 31 and 32, and instead left all of the ink on the page. Gotcha. Uh, why would Mr. Stern or his narrator, Mr. Shandy, why would they do this? Um, what I wrote in the margin of my page at that instant, because here he's written the laugh for Yorick um, a couple of times, talking about the grave of Yorick and the ghost of Yorick and the epitaph and elegy of Yorick. What I wrote in the margin over this black rectangle is a moment of silence. Indeed. Um, interesting. What what would it be a moment moment of silence for? For the passing of Yorick and the death of Yorick. We bow to pray and remember his tragic death. Interesting. 
Um, also, my rectangle is shaped rather like a tombstone with the rounded this, edges. It is. <laughs> and my research does indicate that that's wrong. Okay. Um, there have been, in any book that, that has sort of been in print since 1759, there will be, of course, a mm-hmm. wide variety of printings. Um, but anyone who has an opinion about the most correct way to print Tristram Shandy which I have to assume is five men who get into a lot of fistfights with each other. Um, but they all seem to agree that the correct way to print the black page, which is how it's known, is as a full full page. Full gotcha. page spread uh, over the course of two pages. So right-hand page and then turn a page you turn, and the left-hand page is also black, and then we resume with chapter 13. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That said, why? Now, uh, I think I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting sort of placement, uh, mm-hmm. one might say, because, or 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 rather, the that if if we uh, sort of uh, accept my unsupported assertion that that the way I've described it is the correct printing. Um, there's an interesting effect. It's as if one were to go through a black tunnel of some kind. Ah. One fixes one's eye on... So we have at the end of chapter 12, uh, as you've said, the sort of sort of a eulogy or, or apostrophe for York. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, you could, you could describe it as a moment of silence, but if you turn your eyes physically from one side of the page to the other, you're encountered with its blackness... You flip the page, blackness is now sort of on the other side of you. It's as if before the invention of comic books, someone had tried to illustrate visually the passing through of a of a completely pitch black tunnel or something. Mm-hmm. Um. So that said, uh, what do we pass from and into? You've already mentioned what we pass from. Sure. It's the the tragedy of Yorick. Uh who is a is a sort of unfortunate churchman who mm-hmm. it could be said loved wisely but or what is what is the passage from Othello? Loved uh Oh Is it wisely but not too well? Love I think it's the other way around. Love well but not too wisely. But, nah. That would make more sense, but Hold on. It doesn't sound Love, right. No. I don't remember. I wish I did. Not wisely, but too well. Okay. Not wisely. But so you well. you got you got the sense right, mm-hmm. and I confused you on the word order. So that's there a demerit for me. I am down to a ninety-seven in this class. You of course are still at a thirty-four. Mm-hmm. Um. Yes, or a forty-three. I've forgotten. Um. Yeah. Oh, so you've just accepted this, have you? Yeah. This is no I'm, longer a... I'm resigned. Okay, okay. Well, for resigning, you this, lose This is another... what happens when I start to get a failing grade. <laughs> All right. You really, you really just sort of, uh, just sort of turn a hard corner. Yep. I see, I see. Um, now I forgot what I was going to say. Because I stole your power. <laughs> You wish. Oh, no. 
Yeah, who's in who's underwear, buddy? That's what I thought. Um, yes, loved not wisely, but too well. Uh, the parson you are could be said. Uh, oh, could this phrase could be used for him? I would say. Yeah. Uh, he he loved. Uh, he had an excess of good humor, and sometimes that good humor, of course, took the form of gambling a bit much and presuming on uh the goodwill of his creditors and okay. like timon of athens his creditors goodwill was not as vast as he might have hoped and according to karl marx that's why shakespeare was a socialist um yep thank you yep. for that support you're back up to a 44 all right uh so now I've forgotten where we were again. You're asking where we were going. Oh yes, thank you. <laughs> so uh, we and and this is perhaps the first, not the first of of Tristram's digressions, but perhaps the the most extensive so far in mm-hmm. in the very early part of this book. Um, it, that he he gets himself onto this train of thought and uh he he uh digresses and sort of spirals ends up telling the story about a parson who died i believe before he was born yep um and in order to get himself back on track he has to pass through death into chapter 13 Uh uh-huh how does chapter 13 open with the midwife yes that was mentioned before the midwife who was uh mentioned and who uh is among other things the reason that I often say to my wife when I want her to remember something, "Thou art a leaky vessel, Susanna." <laughs> Can you remember such and so? And then I end up sleeping on the couch. Um, those are unrelated, but that's what occurred to me. It's a correlation, not causation. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, yes. So we've we've passed through death, and as it were. Into, into life, life. <laughs> um who but a preacher would pull that stunt yeah that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> um is there a preacher michael lurking in the pages of this book i would say definitely um i mean lawrence stern is that preacher what what? Lawrence Stern was a preacher? Yes, he was. The next thing you're going to tell me is that he was dying as he wrote this book. What? But he was. Oh. Wait, is that why there's a there's a sort of a meditation on the grave punctuated by an extremely poignant and slightly confusing visual pun very early on in this book? Is that what Probably. you're going to say next? Yep, I'll take credit for that. Good, you get an extra point. You're at 46. Yes. Um... <laughs> Yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was originally going to be a clever uh, segue um, into the fact that the next, and this is, again, this uh, this lecture is oddities in Tristram Shandy. Uh-huh. So the next oddity, I believe, uh, can be found in Volume 2, uh, Chapter, well, it's debatable. Oh. 
just where things begin and end in this in this book. Um, we'll call it chapter seventeen. Um, oh, I... which I would like to point out within a few paragraphs of its beginning does have another of Michael's favorite punctuation marks <laughs> that he tried to make us all believe in the last episode were a real thing, the real one, but which aren't. Which is the finger pointing. Mm-hmm. Which, oh, I should mention that finger pointing right there is, um, uh, he says, I recommend this to painters. Um, talking about the position of uh, Corporal Trim as he's lecturing, and I'm pretty yes. sure that's exactly the painting on the cover of my edition. It does appear to be. It's, it, it, I think, is the exact position that he is holding. So. I think there is actually another famous, and your cover may be based on it, but there's, I think, a famous painting hmm. from not too far after the period that is of this exact scene. Gotcha. Um, so, Tristram Shandy, besides inventing the postmodern novel, invented fan art. <laughs> uh... That said, so a couple more pages into this chapter, another page or two, um, we have a sermon. Uh-huh. Uh, and it takes us quite a long time to get through this sermon. <laughs> so long, in fact, that uh, in, frankly, one of my favorite bits of this novel, uh, we have a bunch of wind-up to lead into the sermon um that has to do with how we found the sermon and and even who the sermon might be by and what its purpose was uh but we have trim made a bow and read as follows the sermon hmm. um and as i i assume many printed sermons at the time even many printed sermons now, uh, you have the title of the sermon, which in this case is simply the sermon. Uh, and then you have a, 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 ref, a biblical reference, Hebrews 13, verse 8. For we trust we have a good conscience. Trust. Trust we have a good conscience. And now we have a bracket. <laughs> um, and the next, in my edition, one... Well, Going on two pages uh, is within these these brackets, which within them contain uh, many dashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I could. Oh yes, some parentheses. Mm-hmm. Um, a manifold number of commas. Uh, uh, definitely some colons and semicolons. Mm-hmm. But you will note. None of the sermon. Nope. We have at the end of this uh, this passage, 110 in, in my edition, Corporal Trim wiped his face and returning his handkerchief into his pocket and making a bow as he did it, he began again. The sermon, <laughs> Hebrews 13, verse 8, for we trust we have a good conscience. Trust. Trust we have a good conscience. So, mm-hmm. my thesis about this and... As a scholar of this book, I did write a 374-page dissertation on this, mm-hmm. is that Lawrence Stern is, in fact, simply padding his book here. 
Mm. He's already out of ideas uh, partway through volume two of nine. And he not only inserts a sermon that he already wrote, (laughs) thereby sort of double-dipping, financially speaking, but he stretches it out by having his characters uh, sort of comment on it and argue with each other within it, which means that all he has to do for many chapters and many more pages of this book is just sort of recycle this material multiple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he was simply being a lazy writer and he had no reason to do this other than uh, greed. Now, class, what do you say to this thesis? I think it's wrong. What? (laughs) What? Defend that statement, sir. Well, And know that no matter what you say, we are going to have a duel on the campus green later. All right. I'll come ready. Um, If it were merely padding the novel, it would not be so funny. (laughs) That's part one of my counter thesis. Uh, Now, it can happen that uh, serendipity causes funniness where ineptitude reigns. Um, But in this case, I think the repetition... And and this this sort of repetition continues as the heart of the comedy in the rest of the novel as well. Um, I mean, you've got a... I forget where it is later, where they... They take several chapters to get down a flight of steps. Um, <laughs> it's 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 the same gimmick going on here. Now I I don't know whether this is a sermon that Lawrence Stern himself wrote. Uh, oh, I think well, that's it, immaterial. Either way. Well then, never mind. I shan't share with you my interesting fact. <laughs> Because if it's not, then he wrote an extra sermon. <laughs> if it is, then the commentary within the sermon going both ways is just so funny. And he, he's able, he demonstrates by that commentary to be able to A, see it, the sermon sincerely, if he did indeed preach it to parishioners, and B, see it ironically through the eyes of Dr. Slop and others uh, as they comment upon it. So, there is my counterpoint set match. Well, <laughs> I must reduce you by about 30 class points. Oh, no. Because while your argument was much better than mine, <laughs> A... You said my interesting fact was irrelevant? (laughs) And B, your comment was much better than mine. Oh, good. In Uh, fairness, I said immaterial. (laughs) Not irrelevant. Well, that's lost you three more points. You are down to nine. How does that feel? I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't feel anymore. (laughs) Well... Oh dear. Um, 
So, even though it's immaterial, I will share with you the thing that, in fact, going into this set of recordings, I was perhaps most excited to share (laughs) about this sermon, uh, which is the fact that this was a real sermon, um, that Lawrence Stern did preach. Uh, Not only did he preach it to uh, parishioners, he preached it in York Minster on July 29, 1750, at the close of the summer assizes or court sessions in York. So York Minster would have been one of the most important pulpits in the nation of England in 1750. Mm-hmm. And I believe the close of the summer assizes would have, and I'm almost certainly saying that wrong, because even with the accent I've affected, I don't always know how the British pronounce things. Um <laughs> But anyway, it would have been a very important time when many important people uh, were there. And I have uh, read these facts that I've just said from the footnotes to the Penguin Classics edition. Um, But I believe my Oxford edition did say that Voltaire was in the audience uh, when Stern preached the sermon. So one of the most important intellectuals, you know, of the time. That's fascinating. Yes. Is it not? um... See? See? Call it immaterial now, will you? Um, <laughs> to the point I was making, it still remains immaterial. Well, this is true. Anyway. Uh, yes. So, that said, uh, I'm going to put you in a strange position because you're the yes. student and I can... don't know if I'm that flexible anymore. All right, listen. I almost certainly slapped the... the uh, <laughs> Uh, whatever explicit content label on the last podcast don't make me put it on this one I mean class session um, so now I forgot Strange what I was going to say thank you I'm going to posit that you uh, Mitchell I believe is how your name is said Hick Oh, Mikkel? <laughs> Got it. Uh, thank you for correcting me. I am humble and can receive correction, and you now have four points in this class. Great. Um, so, Mikkel. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yes. I'm going to put you in the position of pretending oh, goody. that you were... Mm-hmm. A pastor, a minister, a preacher of some kind. Okay. And if in... that would ever happen. Exactly. Um, I mean, you couldn't translate Klingon, much less Hebrew. Um, <laughs> but ignore that I've that I've given you that insult and pretend you were the sort of person who could do that. What would your opinion be of this sermon on sort of a professional level? That's Irrelevant to literature, but perhaps relevant to literature. Um, honestly, when I read it, I tried not to analyze it on a sermon <laughs> basis. But if I were to think over it again... Well, um, yes, because, of course, you're just an English student. Just an English student. Um, it's not terribly textually based. Uh, the text is an excuse. Um, what is the text an excuse for? For a point he wants to make. It's, I think, 
the sermon itself is an illustration in someone riding a hobby horse <laughs> rather than actually preaching to a text. And what hobby horse would you say uh, the preacher, let us sort of leave aside the postmodern layerings of a, of a character, persona, and authorship, uh-huh. what hobby horse would you say the preacher was riding? Um, I'm trying to think of a good word for it. Uh, hypocrisy. Um, I mean, that's part of the whole thing. He wants to get people to think about sincerity and I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I have rather put you on the spot. Yeah. Here. Um. <laughs> but uh, I do think the the sort of words that you've uh, 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 I think the words that you've that you've uh, wrangled from yourself <laughs> at what sounds like great personal cost. It hurt um, a lot. It it does seem to have. Uh, so interesting, honestly, that uh, this this sermon in its original was perhaps preached in front of what one would say in in a very rough analogy would be as if the United States Senate mm-hmm. had just finished a, a meeting. But imagine if if we were at a point in history where, first of all, the idea that um, religion and politics should be separate mm. hadn't really occurred to anyone in such a way that it was put into any, any systems that obtained. Mm-hmm. And secondly, if we were much closer to a point in history when preachers could lose their head to politicians for saying the wrong thing about politicians. Oh, sure. And by lose their head, I do mean lose their head. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that being the case, uh, think simply about the, the final paragraph. Um, Remember this plain distinction, a mistake in which has ruined thousands, that your conscience is not a law. Mm. No, God and reason made the law and have placed conscience within you to determine, not like an Asiatic caddy, which I think is probably a racist thing that we'll (laughs) ignore conveniently, according to the ebbs and flows of his own passions, but like a British judge in this land of liberty and good sense, who makes no new law, but faithfully declares the law which he knows already written. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps this is not the greatest act of courage, but it is certainly an act of courage, <laughs> given such circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Why would? You, why would you think that someone like Lauren Stern would 
put this into his comic novel? What place does something like this have there? Um, I mean, politics is funny in general. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but knowing what I know of, like, the British Parliament and their procedure and, and such, um, banter is part and parcel of how they do things and so this would be just normal in that sense if he were a politician and being a clergyman in the united kingdom he essentially is that um so to make these sort of underhanded universal comments that could apply perhaps directly to people that were in the audience would essentially just be making his political point. And um, if he's, you know, as you said, dying at this point, he doesn't have to worry too much about losing his head. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting reading. Um, now, Tristram Shandy's first volume is released in 1759. Then, uh, this sermon's preached in 1750. True. Stern doesn't go on to die for another uh, 10 years right. or so. Um, so, but he, I, I don't know enough of his biography. He could have had the terminal disease that killed him at that point in 1750. Yeah. Um, so there is, there is that. Uh, it's an interesting, an interesting point. Um, so, now to add to this, mm -hmm. uh, while I have the, the podium, as it were, for what I promise will be the last time before we <laughs> switch to a different format. Um, in the class? In the... Sure, yes, in the <laughs> class. Uh, smart Alec. Hope you enjoy your four points that you have currently. Um, they are as my children. In what sense? I love them. <laughs> well done, sir. You're back up to seven. Yes. And I hope you enjoy wrangling seven children. <laughs> um, so, yes. Uh, one thing that I might mention uh, to necessarily problematize but uh embellish or problematize yes i said it <laughs> what you've just said um stern's two great uh uh novelistic forebears that he does make reference to both implicitly and explicitly are do you know no uh, the two would be Francois Rabelais mm. and uh, Cervantes. Aha. Um, he, I believe, I don't know if this was in a footnote, but I believe I've seen it pointed out that the adjective Cervantic appears more times in this text than in any other single text in the English language. <laughs> and I mean, I think it's like three times in this text. Um but that said, uh, 
by the Victorian era, uh, which this this novel precedes by about the forty-ish years, well, more like sixty or seventy years. Um, oh yeah, you're right. Victor- Victorian yeah. era. The historians tend to place it a few years before Victoria began her reign, but still about the 1830s or so. Mm-hmm. So, say uh, two generations or so. But um, by the Victorian era, the two great sort of foundational novelists uh, were considered to be Cervantes and Rabelais. Um, and Cervantes was considered the dour novelist. Um mm-hmm. And this this is uh, and and of course you're familiar with Don Quixote because uh, we read him for a previous uh, set of fever dreams that you had, uh-huh. Michael. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, which uh, Rabelais, no, Cervantes, uh, translations of him into English in the Victorian era were often emphasized his. Uh, that is um, the the Don himself's dourness. Those aspects of his character where he's put upon, made fun of, made a fool of, mm. and also where he sort of lectures people on on aspects of life and they don't listen to him. Like that's the the uh, aspect that the Victorians liked to embellish, where they saw Rabelais as the poop joke guy. Um, <laughs> Which, to be fair, he is. <laughs> An entire, uh, perhaps, book of Gargantua and Pantagruel uh, is, con- or at least a significant chunk of one volume of Gargantua and Pantagruel is concerned with um, one of the giants who are the two main characters. They're, they're just giants sort of placed into medieval French society okay. who decides to try to find the softest thing with which to wipe his butt. <laughs> and a large part of the plot of this book, such as it is, is concerned with him uh, trying different candidates for the softest thing to wipe his butt. Great. Um, which, to be fair, in comparison, uh, Don Quixote does seem rather serious. Especially if you translated him, translate him in such a way that takes out a lot of the jokes, especially the dirtier ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know that Lawrence Stern necessarily that he sees these 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 sort of poles in that sense, but he certainly sees them as the two major poles of what he's doing as a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Um, now a third pillar or post or or such like uh in addition might be seen to be henry fielding um i prepared these lecture notes and so i'm not slyly googling (laughs) when tom jones was first published uh but if i were i would do it faster than this so i didn't have to keep uh sort of BSing and filling time here. Okay, well, Fielding died in 1754, which uh-huh. places him presumably before uh, even the first volume of Tristram Shandy. Mm-hmm. Yes, Joseph Andrews in 1742, Tom Jones 
1749. Now, uh, Tom Jones is Henry Fielding's perhaps greatest uh, accomplishment. Um, it's a book well worth reading, especially if you love 900-page 18th-century British novels the way that I do. Um, but Tom, Tom Jones is another one that's, that's a, a large, thick book divided into bite-sized portions. I think it's, it's divided into like 15 books, quote-unquote, 15 mm -hmm. parts. And each of these parts has a... Uh, the first chapter of it is um, on, the, on the order of an essay. Um, uh -huh in which Fielding expounds upon many things. Often it is against critics or for uh, the form of the novel, which Fielding draws a direct line to uh, the epic, as in the Homeric epic, and claims that Fielding is inventing a genre, but with some antecedents. Mm -hmm. Now, this is very interesting because um, Fielding got his start as a novelist, satirizing the novels of an earlier man, Named Samuel Richardson. Mm -hmm. Richardson's two most famous uh, books are Pamela and Clarissa. That's right. Um, both of which are moralizing heaps of hop garbage. Um, <laughs> which one of only one of which, thank God, I had to read in grad school. Um, now Pamela uh, specifically is a book about it. it most of uh, Fielding's novels are epistolary, not Fielding, uh, Richardson's novels are epistolary. Mm -hmm. And Pamela specifically is about a young woman who is a maid in uh, the house of a, of a sort of dissolute young nobleman, the kind who inherited all his wealth and has never had to work a day in his life. Uh, whereas Pamela herself is a beautiful young maiden, uh, virginal of course it is emphasized many times mm -hmm. um with whom the dissolute young rake of a lord falls in love with and he tries many many schemes in order to get her to sleep with him uh but without having to marry her and she holds out for marriage in uh florid and no uncertain terms um with uh uh, basically, you know, says nothing until you marry me. Mm -hmm. uh, the which prompts the young lord instead of marrying her to do many things, including imprisoning her at his estate in what would today be considered a form of psychological torture. Um, mm -hmm. Also, sort of tricking her into a phony marriage ceremony. Where all of those like words of a marriage ceremony are said, but it turns out the priest was defrocked, so the the marriage doesn't count. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, Pamela is receiving letters from her parents, bemoaning the danger she is in, and instructing her in no uncertain terms not to give up her virginity before marriage, lest, and I quote, she burn in hell. Mm -hmm. um, now. Uh, Fielding's Fielding originally caught, cut his teeth as a playwright. His first foray into noveldom was when he wrote a book, very short, about 50 pages in a modern edition, called Shamala, 
Mm-hmm. Which is a book where it, it's it's essentially Pamela fan fiction, uh-huh. but if instead of a fan you hated the book. <laughs> uh, in Shamala, uh, we have the same the same woman as Pamela, but these are like the secret letters of Pamela, uh-huh. in which she reveals that she is a an extremely experienced prostitute who has hit on the uh, token of uh, tempting this young lord but denying him everything until he marries her so that she can get his wealth. Uh-huh. Um, which, if you know anything about modern English circles, is just bait for English professors to critique 18th century I- ideas of marriage and, and problematize them as simply you know, prostitution by another name, and right. uh, that becomes a whole thing in fem- feminist criticism, as well as as well as other uh, strains of criticism. Um, and you won't be tested on that here. But that said, uh, so so uh, to someone who has read Pamela and to no one else, Shamala is a very satisfying read, <laughs> um, because. The, the experience of reading Pamela is basically akin to an extremely florid version of the worst Saturday morning TV shows you've seen produced by like an evangelical Christian, like, uh, uh, whatever cartoon mm-hmm. company that, that produces what amount of bad sermons with, uh, desperate attempts at relevance. Um, <laughs> unlike this show. That comment was on fleek. Um, <laughs> so, that said, yes. So we have Shamala. Um, mm-hmm. There is an ancillary character in Richardson's Pamela named Joseph Andrews. Pamela's last name is Andrews. Joseph is her brother. He shows up in a few letters. Uh, Fielding set out to do another Shamala, essentially, but about Joseph Andrews. However, partly, partway through... This book, he got distracted and accidentally wrote what amounts to a real novel, um, where Joseph Andrews has a a uh, character arc and has some depth and complexity and goes beyond the satire and, and uh, one-dimensional nature of Shamala. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Jones then comes along as Fielding's attempt to uh, take this thing that he's accidentally invented and do it on purpose and do it upright. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Joseph Andrews, um, or rather Tom Jones, again, is this 15-part, my, my paperback edition does run to roughly 900 pages, uh, in which, again, the first chapter of each book is a defense, um, at least one of which contains a passage in which, uh, uh, Henry Fielding declares independence from other form, like art forms, written written forms, um, and says, "No critics can judge me based on form. Uh, I am doing what I want to do, and you know, basically take your unities and and stuff them." Mm-hmm. So, that said, uh, what Lawrence Stern has done is take these sort of uh, 
bestsellers and problematize them. Uh-huh. Um, and part of what he does in this, you can see the influence of Tom Jones by the fact that Lawrence Stern also declares independence. He gripes at his critics. Mm-hmm. But what Lawrence Stern has essentially done is taken one of Henry Fielding's sort of essays and broken it up like you would do, I don't know, like a, a, a Ritz crackers on top of a hot dish and sprinkled it throughout his novel. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing it in a very sort of rigid formal way, he has uh, uh, scattered it throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, and in uh, your reading of this, uh, this sermon, I think we can also see some evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stern is taking a genre, the sermon, and, and taking a sermon and, and printing it as a pamphlet, uh, what we might think of as like a, a chat book or an, an essay, a think piece now, um, was very common at the time. Mm-hmm. But he's taken this genre of, of sermon and he's sort of uh, declared independence from it. And so he's created a brand new thing uh, out of these old materials, mm-hmm. um, which is what leads us back to your original comment at the beginning of this semester uh, about this being a postmodern novel. Uh-huh. Some rather too clever critics have said there's this is a postmodern novel before there was any modern to be post about. Um, yep. But the uh, the sort of point here, and the, the point we've come to is, we, uh, uh, in, in film criticism, we talk about three stages of a film genre. You have the, uh-huh. the, uh, uh, the primitive stage, the classical stage, and the revisionist stage. Um, primitive stage is when you don't necessarily know you're operating in a genre yet. You're just sort of telling a sort of story. You can think about film noir from the early 40s, early, basically throughout the 40s. Uh, film noir was created ad hoc by the circumstances of B-movies being pushed out on low budgets and with, uh, limited resources. Um, and that's what created a look for them. Now, as you move into the 50s and 60s, you get a classical stage where everyone knows that when you have a, a sort of a noir movie that the dame is going to be uh, uh, problematic and the the uh, uh, lighting is going to be stark and the bodies are going to pile up. Um, then you have, say, a revisionist stage, which, which you get into perhaps in like the Coen, several of the Coen Brothers movies, in fact, where a movie like Blood Simple or even um, The Big Lebowski operates on the principle of everyone knowing what a noir is and the joke is that you're violating this uh-huh. um or you're you're twisting it in an, an unexpected way uh people say the matrix could be a, a revisionist science fiction film mm. um a lot of the surprises and the the payoffs of the matrix are based on you having certain expectations of a science fiction film and it violating them mm-hmm. 
So Tristram Shandy has already entered a revisionist stage of novelism. Right. Where it, uh, it, it sort of has, has expectations. Lawrence Stern, the author, or Tristram, the narrator, knows you expect certain things, and he's going to violate them. Mm-hmm. Um... So that said, I want to end our tour of oddities in Tristram Shandy. If I can find the thing. Aha. Um want to end it before a part that we talked about last time, Sockenbergius's tale, which is mm-hmm. another oddity, and without even mentioning the squiggly lines that Stern wrote when he got bored and pretended we're a thing. (laughs) Uh, And I want to direct us to chapter 36 of volume 3. I'd like to see, Michael, how wrong your edition got this one. Okay. If you'd flip to probably the next... Wait. Oh, okay. Your chapter's one. Or I might not know how to read Roman numerals. No, your chapters are different. Interesting. Possibly. Anyway. Uh, now, this is the famous marble page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this comes right in the middle of when Lawrence Stern, or rather Tristram Shandy, I believe, yes, is talking about noses. Yes. And he is at great pains to point out that he is only talking about noses. Mm-hmm. And that... No one better think. No one must think, yes. <laughs> that noses are a stand-in for anything else. Because they only mean no- noses. Mm-hmm. So, in chapter... In my edition, anyway, in chapter 36... Uh, I think it's and maybe in 38. The in, one. What's that? It ends the veil of the black one, the dark veil of the black one. Yes, it does. That's 36. Oh, so your edition just moved the page. What a bad edition. (laughs) I must give you a better edition than this. M. So, chapter 36. Um, We're right in the middle of talking about noses. Uh... And I. So Stern uh, talks about some of his father's supposed authorities on the subject of noses. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, he digresses based on a uh an analogy he's made in the previous paragraph that doesn't seem to have really anything directly to do with the point. Mm-hmm. A rarity in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, begin the paragraph, pray, who was Tickle Toby's mayor? Mm-hmm. And me quoting this in this with the context I've given you is me giving you all of the context, but there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in his way where some of the dashes seem to be interjections either from the narrator or an imagined uh, respondent, reader. yeah, reader or respondent to the narrator. It is just as incredible and unscholar-like a question, sir, 
as to, as I, to have asked what year the Second Punic War broke out. I did skip the parenthetical with Latin abbreviations just to make you sad. No. Oh. What are the Latin abbreviations, Michael? Ob Urbcon. Do you know what they stand for? Uh, Ob Urb is um, from the city. Uh, no. I do have a footnote I'm, that I'm explains it. with Ob Urb. Well, I was just testing you. Okay. And you failed. Good. You're dipped back down to four points. Oh, my children. I do have... <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty troubling analogy now that, we, <laughs> now that I'm taking them away from you. Good night. Why are you always the one who makes this podcast so dark and weird? Uh, I do have a footnote that explains it, but I'm okay. choosing to skip it. Very good. The Second Punic War broke out. Who was Tickle Toby's mayor? Read, 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 read. My unlearned reader, read. Which is also what we on this podcast say to the gentle listener. <laughs> uh, or by the knowledge of the great saint Paralipe. Manon, I tell you beforehand, you had better throw down the book at once, for without much reading, by which your reverence knows I mean much knowledge, you will no more be able to penetrate the moral of the next marbled page, motley emblem of my work, than the world with all its sagacity has been unable to unravel the many opinions, transactions, and truths which still lie mystically hid under the dark veil of the black one. Mm -hmm. So he acknowledges first that the black, the black page is weird, Mm-hmm. He implies that there are many opinions, transactions, and truths uh, which lie mystically hid under it, mm -hmm. which is a wildly esoteric thing to say. Uh-huh. And then he pre-acknowledges that the next marbled page is extremely weird. Uh-huh. Um, now, with that said, before we go through the marbled page, uh, like Alice in the, in the Looking Glass, mm -hmm. do you have anything to say about this passage leading up to it? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, he's baiting the reader, which is a thing that he does occasionally, one occasionally. might say. Once in a while. Yeah. Um. So we go through the marble page, and what is the next? Well, your edition is wrong. That's On, right. At the beginning of 37, which in the correct edition, which mine, of course, is by... Uh, default. Mm -hmm. What is the next word? The the first word of chapter thirty-seven. Nihil. Which means what? <laughs> Nothing. Um. Now it might be, and of course, back into chapter thirty-seven. This is in the context of a quote from Pamphagus. Mm -hmm. Pamphagus. Uh. Who is back into talking about the authorities on noses uh -huh. that we digressed into the marbled page for apparently no reason. Uh, and we are now back in there. But the first word is nihil. And uh, it is uh, pointed out in both of the scholarly editions of this book that I have obtained. That this page, in its original printing, the method used to create it... Mm. would create a different page in each and every single printed volume. Oh, nice. The pattern would be completely different in every volume. That's fantastic. Um, I forget what the what the method was that was used, but it had something to do with injecting a, a printing plate with light and dark ink and just uh. 
letting them sort of coalesce get to coalesce at different uh i think there were different viscosities probably because they were sure. different hues and In between printings it moved probably a little bit exactly yes yeah so stern implies that there is one correct answer about the the uh black page he uses that to imply that there is one correct answer about this page and then he says nihil Mm-hmm. Nothing. What do you make of this, Michael? Is Lawrence Stern, in other words, a nihilist? <laughs> or is Tristram Shandy a nihilist? Um, for the purposes of humor, yes. Um, I think what so. do you mean by that? I mean that... And this is your oral exam. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean that nihilism is funny. Um... um it it, i mean that's that's you know you ask that question what is humor what is funny what is what's the definition of that and you can look at the absurdity of things the the incongruity of concepts juxtaposed together and that is what generates humorousness and so to take these absurd incongruous concepts and juxtapose them and point out and highlight the nothing of them is humorous uh it's it, i mean he, he he he's keying into this idea of you know you read a book and you get knowledge out of it and so and especially if there's like this this secret moral that you have to penetrate in this marbled page uh that there there's something very very important that everybody needs to get and then he says here's the answer it's nothing <laughs> uh it's a bait and switch and it's it's funny and if you were going into it sincerely you would be angered by it but if you're going into it understanding that he was going to make fun of you and all of his readers then you would be in on the joke and appreciate it. Yes, you have, in fact, as you were meant to do, and as your oral exam uh, was based upon, reminded me of the point that I actually intended to make when we talked about the sermon. Aha. And I talked about uh, Rabelais and uh, Cervantes. Hmm. Now, both of these men, uh, you can go back and listen to our Cervantes fever dream. Um, not the one Nant didn't like, but the, the other four that... Nat didn't comment on, so I assume he adored. Um, you can go back and listen to those and uh, hear some of the ways in which we talked about the possibility, at least, that uh, Cervantes' work was a commentary on the Spanish Inquisition and the... Uh, sort of oppressive government of Spain at the time that he wrote, and that Cervantes perhaps used humor to disguise uh, some of his more acerbic commentaries on the powers that be. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, Rabelais, and uh, another connection between Rabelais and Stern, Rabelais was a Catholic priest. Mm. Um, Rabelais almost did get executed for the funny poop joke books that he wrote. Because, 
uh well it's it's complicated and uh that's this is not the francois rabelais podcast yet mm. um rabelais did make fun of some of the leading members of the sorbonne mm-hmm. sorbonne? sorbonne uh the leading uh catholic seminary in france at a time when the protestant reformation was an existential threat to the catholic church or was seen this way um and at a time when the sorbonne was considered one of the chief defenders of the faith so to go against Mm -hmm. the sorbonne was to literally go against god and the pope uh in reverse order no in fact in correct order of importance to (laughs) medieval catholic church's eyes um so the rabelais life was in fact threatened by uh his his funny poop jokes where he maybe accidentally called out some religious hypocrites by calling them religious hypocrites mm-hmm. um and in both cases in in cervantes case and rabelais case uh they hid their uh more acerbic comments their their comments that might have gotten them in more trouble in more again especially in their time executable trouble mm-hmm. they hid them behind a comic facade um in rabelais case you can see it from the very beginning where within the first page of don quixote we have three or four layers of narrators um which one might posit was a a tactic t- if anything too offensive came up for him to say no no i was in character as yeah. the saracen heretic who is recounting this tale that was his opinion not my opinion it's mm-hmm. funny you see mm-hmm. um whereas rabelais spilled much ink uh on the topic of agilasts um and agilasts are the sort of people you can know you're an agilast if you heard excuse me if you heard michael just now um say that it was funny that certain parts of this book had no meaning and were constructed in fact to make fun of the idea of a single meaning you're an agilast if that infuriated you (laughs) um you may still be an agilast if you didn't but an agilast was a rabelais term for someone who is simply incapable of perhaps laughter overall and certainly self-laughter certainly laughing at themselves Mm -hmm. um so yes, the the uh, I think that both the marbled pages you have very adroitly analyzed it, and uh, the the sermon itself, and even the self self uh, referential, the self uh, self criticizing of the sermon, might all be uh, what possibly even Mark Twain called humor's function in literature of coating a bitter pill in sugar Uh so that it would go down without the recipient knowing what they had swallowed Uh um so i was wondering if mark twain would make it into that discussion i mean he he certainly must right i mean i think i think that mark twain would be content to be a silent uh listener at a dinner table with rabelais cervantes and stern but he certainly must be in the room would he remain silent though no absolutely not (laughs) but he would be content if he had yeah yeah um yes 
Yeah, right. Well, this is the end of the semester. And Michael, for your correct explication of the marbled page, you you see what I've done is I Miyagi'd you. Oh. I I said that the first half of the of of today would be lecture, and that the second half would be your oral exam. When in fact I did the first half as the oral exam. Oh. So you didn't know you were being examined. Uh-huh. And then I snuck a little bit in it at the end with the marbled page stuff, and then sort of the middle portion was the lecture. And um, fortunately, you passed. Yay! I mean, you got a seventy-one. Uh. Okay, fine, you got a ninety-one. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you're happy about that. Wait, what if I say you got a ninety-nine? Ooh. Okay, that that sound was worth the compromising of my professional integrity <laughs> um yeah sure you've gotten a 98 uh wait what did i say before i said 99 hey. we'll give you 101 what the <laughs> wow uh thank you for that so gentle <laughs> listener um if you've endured these two episodes of us talking about tristram shandy and this weird gimmick that we felt the need to create for some reason <laughs> Um, please know that the next two episodes will be like normal-ish for this podcast. Um, and so please don't leave. Uh, we need you. We, we, I mean, we do. We literally do. Uh, and that said, um, thank you for listening. Uh, I forgot what I do at this point. Um, well, we're going to keep talking about Tristram Shandy. Yes, thank you. Join us next time while we continue to discuss Tristram Shandy. Not in a weird Michael Fever Dream way, but in our normal shared Fever Dream way. <laughs> um, so, read along. If you need pointers on how to read, listen to the entirety of last the last episode, the previous episode. Um... And join us, uh, talk about it to us. Uh, there's a contact section. I think I forgot to mention that last episode. Uh, yeah. in, on the uh, Michael and Ethan section of the Tapestry Radio website, uh, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Um, if you did like this show, uh, try out some of the other Tapestry Radio network shows. We have many selections. Uh, there's Intermission, our uh, backstage theater audio drama podcast. There's uh, Pokemon Rollout, the real flagship podcast of this network, um, which is a Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. I did it? Yeah, you did. I did it twice in a row. Twice in a row. Neat. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Um, wait, what do I score on your... On your uh, saying the Pokemon word scale. I'm gonna save the grade until the fourth episode in this set. Oh my gosh. I've taught you too well. <laughs> um, and the student has become the master. Alright, that's the accent you have to do for the entire next episode. <laughs> Great. Uh, and we don't even have a gimmick for it. You're just gonna have to I do that accent. Talk, Michael. Uh... Like if Sean Connery and Lawrence Olivier both had a stroke. 
simultaneously. Yeah. They each only had half a functioning brain and those brains <laughs> merged together. Yes. Um, <laughs> join us next time for our uh, uh, improv skit podcast based on that premise. Um, also, listen to uh, us play Fiasco. Uh-huh. Um, a podcast where people play the game Fiasco, which I think is technically an RPG. To me, it smacks as much of improv. It's mm-hmm. sort of like a hybrid form. It's really cool. It's fun to listen to. Um, the people on it do a very good job. I gestured at Michael, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, because he's on some of it. Some of it. Some of it. Mm-hmm. Uh there are other people on it who we don't care about on this podcast. Um, let's see. What else? Did I miss any podcasts? Nah, that's good. All right. Uh, Michael, where are you on Twitter? I am at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. I am at Bjartlet on Twitter. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. It was a joke I made in 10th grade about, like, it was like a Bjork thing, and I am stuck with it. Um... Let's see. What else is there? Uh, feel free to join us in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Twitter. No, on Facebook. Facebook. We will let you in if you are not an Agilist, which you all know what that means now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what else? Uh, on Twitter, at Room with Scotch. Yes, we are on Twitter, at Room with Scotch. Uh, an original thought that I had. Mm-hmm. And I think... That is it? I think so. Oh, uh, also, submit your homework. Yes! Homework. We will do it badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we encourage you to submit it to your teacher because plagiarism is funny to us um, because we want you to go to plagiarism jail. Right. And that's all. Folks. Remember, <laughs> until next time, it's our party. And we'll cry if Uncle Toby makes us. (laughs) He will. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.